The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Ezra Klein from Box and Panoply's podcast, The Weeds. And I'm doing something different today. I sat down with Arthur Brooks, who is the president of the American Enterprise Institute, one of D.C.'s biggest think tanks, center-right think tank. Arthur just wrote The Conservative Heart. He is a columnist for The New York Times. He thinks a lot about happiness and about its intersection with public policy. He's a really fascinating guy, as you'll hear on the podcast, a really snappy dresser. And he and his think tank really matter. Uh, when Politico recently wrote up who Jeb Bush's intellectual influences were, Arthur was one of the, the first people named. So we have a, a really wide-ranging conversation about what is the role of a think tank, how do you manage big organizations, how do people sort of attain happiness at work, what kind of happiness is possible in, in different kinds of work, what book he wished he had read at 20. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you will too. You can email me at weeds at box.com and tell me if you like this sort of thing and we should do it more. You should review us on, on iTunes and tell all your friends about what a great podcast this is. And now here's Arthur. You look great today. Can I say that? You can. Thank you. And so do you, Ezra. So people in the live studio audience can't see this, but Arthur has like this huge, like cool silver watch on and like these big colorful cufflinks. You are, I think it is fair to say, the nattiest of the think tank executives I know. Well, that says exactly is it nothing. Is Ezra. it counter signaling <laughs> that you're worried that because you run a think tank, people will think you're boring? So you dress in these sort of very natty outfits to, to show people that you haven't lost your kind of one-time musician cool? Uh, I don't think I ever thought of it that way in particular. I'm not trying to actually be nattier than any of the think tank bosses, which, by the way, is the easiest thing you could possibly do. This well, is not exactly the coolest signal. Exactly right. So, and <laughs> <laughs> it's an industry that it's grown out of academia, and academia is the dowdiest possible way that you can make a living when you at least when you're talking about how you look so it's it's an easy game to dominate so this is a good segue into you have i think a pretty unusual background for your current job yeah you were a, a traveling musician to, mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that about your time as a french horn player and sort of how you first got into that but then made the transition to be running the American Enterprise Institute. It's a non-linear path, but it's everybody's got a story non -linear. like this. Yeah, pretty non-linear. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I started when I was 19. Uh, I went away to college and didn't make it through a year. I mean, I dropped out, or you know, dropped out. Where kicked, were you from? Kicked out, splitting hairs. At this, I'm from Seattle, Washington. I'm from a, a liberal Democratic family in Seattle, Washington. I'm not really politically very active, but just sort of culturally, relatively left-wing family, which says, again, nothing, because in Seattle, there are about eight Republicans. Almost everybody comes from a family that's uh, that's culturally left. I, I knew nobody who voted for Ronald Reagan. But that, that election of 1980 was the first presidential election I ever paid attention to, and it had kind of an effect on me, and it came back a little bit later. But in the meantime, I was a musician, yeah. I mean, I dropped out of college and was playing the French horn playing chamber music, played a couple of years on the road with a jazz guitar player named Charlie Bird, made a couple of albums with him, wound up uh, ultimately in the Barcelona Symphony, where I went uh, chasing a girl, of course, and uh, we're just celebrating our 24th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you very much. It's wonderful. Thank you. No, it's great. It's... I've noticed, too, that all of your New York Times columns begin with an anecdote of you and your wife. Yeah, a little bit. Well, yeah. And if I were it's writing sort of two columns a week... It's like color reporting. It's a little bit of color reporting, <laughs> and I have to say it's pretty much done. So the last couple of columns, I haven't done that, not to mention the fact that I'm hearing from my wife a lot. It says, come on. I mean, do you have any other material? So my column this week was about the Pope. And I didn't start with an anecdote about me and That's my wife. That's true, actually. You did not begin the... That would have been a, <laughs> Bad a, a taste. stretch of one, sure. <laughs> That's right. So, okay. So you're a traveling French horn player. You go to Barcelona right. chasing yeah. after a woman who becomes your wife. Exactly right. And 
something you know yada 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 happens and yeah. now you're running so so what happens <laughs> somebody slipped me a roofie no it was uh, what happened was when i was in the in the barcelona symphony i got interested in studying i, I didn't have my bachelor's degree and it occurred to me that sooner or later i was going to need to to get some more knowledge and i was interested in a lot of different things so i started studying i thought maybe i would get a bachelor's degree in you know renaissance poetry or something and i, I got really interested in economics just fascinated with economics. I had no idea that this was going to happen, but I felt like it, it gave me kind of an oracle on truth. And I know, you know, people listening to this are just shaking their heads going, oh man, this guy's delusional. He thinks that economics is giving you an oracle on truth. But the first time when you take economics, as really, when you did too, I'm sure you said, wow, you can learn a lot. You can apply this in lots and lots of ways. And the deeper I got into it, the more I started thinking about policy and politics and current events. Yeah, there's uh, nothing more dangerous than somebody who's just taken oh, one yeah. economics. I mean, it I really know. does I feel know. like I know. I know. it makes you really insufferable after that first economics class. That's right. Like, no, it's all about demand. Really, if you want to know the truth, I mean, it's like you wreck every party. Absolutely. But the more I got into it, the more I realized I wanted to keep studying. And I, I decided to make a career change and went on and got my master's and PhD and then went into academia as a college professor, mostly at Syracuse. And one thing about your sort of transition from being an economist at Syracuse to, to a think tanker is that you weren't studying, to my knowledge, sort of the very traditional DC topics. You weren't primarily a tax economist or a health economist, or you were studying happiness. Happiness and, and charitable giving, the two things that I wrote books on. And, and my main area of research actually was philanthropy and why people give, and who gives, and who says they give, and who actually gives. And so behavioral economics is kind of my bag. I'm, I'm really interested in applying social science techniques and quantitative techniques to things that move the human heart. There's a tendency for people to have exhaustive, wonderful toolkits in social sciences, and they just apply them to the dustiest, most boring topics that are kind of irrelevant to how people live their lives. Now, I say that with appropriate humility. I understand there's importance to a lot of things that don't thrill you on a day-to-day -day basis, but I didn't want to do that work. And so when I started looking at the interesting unstudied topics that move people's souls, it was the love they have for each other, the gratitude that they feel, the things that they do voluntarily. And there's so much data and there's so much richness in our society. I dedicated myself to studying those things, particularly after I got tenure, by the way. I wrote a lot of really boring papers before I got tenure. I wrote a paper called Genetic Algorithms and public economics. I'm often surprised people's research doesn't change more after they get tenure. Because well, like the incentives to get tenure are so narrow. And right. then it's like, well, they can't fire you, so you can research whatever you want. <laughs> well, generally speaking, what happens after people get tenure is they their research just becomes less. Right. The, they just start doing less That, work. to be fair, is a, a totally reasonable also other version of that, that the really fun thing to research is to not research. Yeah, that, I suppose. And But what I did is I decided, I actually had kind of a vision quest right after I got tenure. And thank God I got it kind of early in my, in my academic career because I was starting late. I finished my PhD when I was in my mid-30s. And so I got tenure relatively early, and I said, okay, what do I want to do? Uh, what can I actually do that will help humanity and answer some big questions? And I decided that talking about charitable giving and human happiness was the way to go, and I stopped writing about genetic algorithms, and I started writing about the human heart. And so how do you end up at, at, at AI? So when I was actually, right after I got tenure, I started looking around at the places that I most admired for public policy. And I'm, I'm fairly politically conservative. And the free enterprise movement has always really moved me a lot because poverty is something I care deeply about. And the, the free enterprise system has been just unbelievably powerful at lifting billions of people out of poverty. And I wanted to study that more. 
all the roads to that led to the American Enterprise Institute. Some of the greatest minds in economics and social policy and, and even foreign policy as it bears on some of these topics came from AEI. At the time, I was writing about monthly in the Wall Street Journal and somebody from AEI called and said, do you want to be a visiting scholar? I said, yeah, are you kidding? And I came as so, much so as I could. So they reached out to you? Yeah. They, well, originally, yeah. And what happened was they gave me an office and it, really not very much money. But when I came to AEI, I mean, I admired people so much. I, I was actually a donor. I was writing checks mm. to AEI before I came to AEI because I, I love the place as a nonprofit. And I got to my office and there was nobody there. It was very early in the morning for the first day. And there was this plaque on the door that said my name. And I was just so overwhelmed that I took a picture of it on my cell phone and sent it to my wife. And she writes back and says, you are such a geek. <laughs> <laughs> and then as time went on, they were going through a chief executive search. And that's the part that's a little bit fuzzy, uh, how, how the dart wound up hitting me. But thank God it did. That was seven years ago. Do you, do you have an explanation for that? I mean, you must have some idea of how you went from being, I think at this point, probably not a visiting scholar, right? I was a visiting you scholar. You were still, still a visiting yeah, scholar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was still at Syracuse and full time. Had you been chair? At, uh, did you have any no. management experience? Zero. None. None. No, no leadership experience. I had no zero ambitions to lead an organization. So what was wrong with the AI executive search process that I, yeah. ended up with you? <laughs> <laughs> there, there's no succession or, or search process in this industry. That you know, The think tank industry is relatively narrow. If you want to get a, a college president, you go on the college president market. If you want to get a think tank president, you got to invent it yourself. That's, by the way, the reason that sometimes think tank presidencies haven't gone very well in, in the industry because nobody actually knows what the industry standard is supposed to be. And in a place like like AEI, which is very academic. It has intellectual creativity, freedom standards. There's no corporate policy line. People disagree with each other constantly. There's there's basically pure academic freedom at AEI. I mean, we have a mission, of course, but there's there's real freedom to write what people want. They need somebody who has a scholarly background. So they said, listen, we want a guy with a PhD. We want somebody who's done policy analysis. We want somebody who shares the free enterprise ethos. And pretty soon, that's a sample of zero. <laughs> and somebody who wants to be an administrator, which, of course, is insane because... Nobody wants to be an administrator who's in the scholarly life. That's trading down. And somehow the, the idea came up that this might be a, at least a chance worth taking for AEI. I'm, I'm glad they did. Thank I, God. I, I want to come back to nobody wants to be an administrator. But I want to begin – I want to go here with like a, a somewhat simpler question actually. Yeah. Because before I got involved mm -hmm. in sort of politics and before I began reading think tank research, I think I had a very different idea when I heard the term think tank hmm. to what I understand it to be now. So how would you – how do you define think tank? to people who don't know what it is? Well, think tanks mean a lot of different things. And when they were originally conceived of, and AEI is one of the oldest in the world, as a matter of fact, the Brookings Institution is older from the teens. AEI was started in the late 1930s. And they were alternatives to academia. So they're basically, they do all the research of academia, but without the teaching. That's how they were conceived of the at dream. their inception. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> it's perfect. I come from an academic community. <laughs> I think it is fair to say that I grew up like literally on university property. Yeah. And, because your father uh, was a math professor, is right? A math professor, yeah, yeah, as was mine. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm really bad at math, unlike <laughs> you who became a quantitative economist. Um, that's why I had to move to D.C., where if you can like literally add and subtract numbers in a budget table, you get this reputation as some sort of math genius. I was like the great thing about D.C. is you can have like the math here doesn't even require like the big calculator. You can do it with like the little like calculator yeah, yeah, that yeah. only has division and multiplication. I know. If you're really sophisticated, you can use Excel. Right, yeah. But nobody – like <laughs> regressions are very rare. You don't need to do them very yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we uh, do need to do them more. But the people – Right. They think are not they don't need more, to. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's why God created AEI, by the way. <laughs> but teaching, I, I would say, is not always spoken of with the – 
there's some people who really love reverence. it, but yeah, I'd say I overheard some people occasionally not speaking of teaching with quite as much reverence yeah. as one would hope. No, that's right. And when you go to teaching colleges, you know, the high powered colleges like Williams or Swarthmore and the, mm. the people there, they talk about their students yeah. and how much they love their students, how great the kids are. And they'll have a teaching load. There's a couple of classes or even three classes in a semester and they enjoy it. Right. But at research universities, the, the incentives are all aligned to publish papers. Mm -hmm. It's the whole publisher parish thing is no joke. If you can get out of the classroom without a felony, but you're publishing a lot, you're going to get tenure is the way it works out in a lot of these places. Now, I like teaching, and now I do about 150 speeches a year. So effectively, I'm, I'm kind of lecturing right. a lot. It's and a it's, lot of speeches. It's actually. a lot of speeches. There's not that much thinking in tanks anymore Are, when you run these things. So let me narrow it down then. How, what do you think is the role of a Washington think tank, a politically oriented think tank? Now, most of them have some political orientation, yeah. but I think it's actually less interesting to be politically oriented than to be policy oriented. The critical thing to understand about the most effective think tanks in America is they have an identifiable mission, but they have some intellectual freedom. The most important mistake that think tanks make is they have core corporate lines where they say, basically, we stand for policy X. Why? Because when you do that, then your scholars, who are supposed to be intellectually independent, they kind of have to find that. And if you're looking empirically, uh, if you're looking through the data and you have free inquiry, if you're wrong, you should know first, not last. And you shouldn't mm -hmm. fit your data to a preconceived conclusion. So that's, a, that's actually kind of a problem in our industry. And that's something that we militate against at AEI. It's the reason we don't have any corporate positions. And, and if we're wrong, we want to know. Not to mention the fact that we bring people in who actually don't share our mission precisely to kind of murder border ideas. That's been very good for our institution, but not every place shares that, that I, ethos. I, give me a couple of examples of people who are at AEI or research that has come out of AEI that has called into question maybe the set of positions that, that people associate with the think tank? We do disagreement pretty well in a couple of different ways. N number one is we make sure that we have scholars who disagree with each other on particular topics. And, and a classic case of that in the policy wonkiest world is how you talk about a carbon tax. You, mm -hmm. You've written about this, you know, but for those who are not complete nerds who are listening to us, a carbon tax is the way that you could, you could tax the use of, car of carbon-based fuels at the unit level. In other words, the, every, every mile you drive, you would tax it in a certain way such that the carbon that you emit would be, you'd be charged for it. Okay. Now, Half of our economists think that's a great idea, and half our economists think that's an idiotic idea. Why? Because there are two schools of thought. One is what we call the public finance school that says that's a highly efficient thing to do. If you want less of something, you should tax that particular thing, not something somewhat aligned with it. But the other half of our economists are from the, the public choice school that say, oh, yeah, you know what? In the real world, that's going to turn into an exercise in political log rolling. That's a stupid idea. These guys duke it out every single day. They, yeah, you should hear them yelling in the halls. It's fantastic. That's one way. The second is, while everybody at AEI is aligned with the free enterprise mission, and but they don't agree on policies, but they're aligned with the free enterprise mission, what you find is when we do events, we do 350 events a year, we make sure and you're known for having the best food at your events. Yeah, that's right. And that's it's, a big, <laughs> it's a big draw for when Which, I was an intern here. <laughs> oh, that's right. And that's not a source of contention at AEI. But, <laughs> but what is is that we make sure that we invite people who disagree with our points of view. And you know, if we'll have. We regularly have our friends from the Center for American Progress, which is the, the most prominent and best really left-wing think tank in Washington, D.C. They're smart guys. They have good values. They disagree with us. They challenge our thinking. And we, we, we give them the, the podium. 
I kind of take pride in the fact that we're nicer to people on the left than we are on the right because we don't want people to say, I'm not going back there again. Those guys are jerks. It's a bunch of ad hominem. No, no. I want people to recognize that there should be a marketplace of ideas and the competition of ideas is fundamental to a free society. Not everybody will know this, but I think it's fair to say that AI is and is perceived as center-right. It's sort of the big mm -hmm. center-right <clears throat> right. think tank in Washington. Free enterprise and American leadership are the two things that we're typically known for, a pretty substantive and a strong American forum policy and a real enthusiasm for the free enterprise system on sort of for human flourishing. What do you think are the boundaries between a think tank and an advocacy group? And, and the reason I ask is that there's a trend um, in Washington, I'd say going back, I mean, probably going back a long time, but really going back five or 10 years now, where you have think tanks developing 501c3s, where they develop arms of the think tank that are much more advocacy oriented. The Center for American Progress has one on the left, Heritage has one on the right. Uh -huh. I don't think, does AI have a 501c3? No, 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 like no, no, no. 501c4. 501c4, The C4 is the one that is advocacy, the right. C3 is academic. Apologies, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And that has, I think, blurred the line much more. So how do you think mm. about the difference between, given that these think tanks have a mission, they are often trying to make a certain set of outcomes happen in the world. AEI briefs a lot of politicians. Politicians often come to AI to unveil their policy proposals. There is a, a real sort of push and pull between the sort of academic mission to sort of find the right answer and the mission of trying to make the discoveries of the think tank into public policy, which even if you do try to have a lot of academic freedom, over time places become the sort of place where one kind of person goes and another kind of person sure. doesn't. And over time that, that helps reinforce the idea that we're trying to get this done. Yeah. The key thing is that think tanks do really well, uh, unlike universities. If you go to a university president and you say, what's the mission of this university? There'll be a lot of hemming and hawing and a little bit of discussion about the products. You know, we teach and we have research and, you know, we believe in, you know, expanding knowledge and giving kids a good experience, et cetera, et cetera. Think tanks can be more specific than that and have a mission that's very clear about what a better world looks like in general contours. And it should have, a, it should have moral hues to it. So AEI's mission is that, that we're a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to this proposition that expanding liberty, increasing individual opportunity, and encouraging free enterprise, as well as strong defense, give the most people the best life. So that's a strong concept of what the world looks like, but it's not specific about actual policies. And that's really critical. The mission that we can bring to the policy discussion is having people understand really where our morals and our ethics lie, but that we're open to new ideas when it comes to actual public policies. When that gets blurred, when you have specific policies, but a fuzzy ethos or, or moral standard, then things get a little bit backwards. And I think that then you, it's hard to describe exactly what a think tank is. Right. And, and that's kind of where we are, by the way. I mean, if you go into most industries and you say, what's a private equity firm? You kind of know. But they do all sorts of different things. What's an insurance company? They do all different sorts of things. You got to tell me more. And we're in a world right now where what's a think tank? Well, you got to tell me more. I'm a big consumer of think tank research. Right? I know I'm you a big are. Freeloader. <laughs> I'm on, a big consumer of your world. work. Well, thank you. Which is consuming my work. Oh, how interesting! It's a wonderful closed loop, like so it's much a in Washington. Self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> Um, but one thing that I worry about a lot with the think tank world is the way that they can become a kind of complex to encourage motivated reasoning. A tremendous amount of what happens in Washington under the cover of policy argumentation 
is not trying to find the right answer. It is trying to reason backwards to the right answer. And one of the ways you do that, one of the ways you go to your constituency, your people, and try to show them that your position makes sense is you trot out this research or these scholars. Or, And one of the things I think you see in a lot of think tanks in Washington um, and with a lot of individual think tankers, because sometimes think tanks will often have a range of people doing very, very different right. kinds of things. But is you can really find at this point a think tank to justify anything. And when you're watching you know, at home and watching cable news and this person comes on or you're even a, oftentimes a journalist trying to figure out what is what. And and I'm making up the name of a think tank. So if I actually get a real think tank, I apologize. But the Institute for Competitive Freedom has a senior fellow who says, yeah, I did the research on this and it totally checks out. It becomes very difficult for people to tell what is actually going on. And it has struck me often that the think tank world in D.C. is a very cheap way of buying credibility that would be hard to buy otherwise. Look, it's the same problem in journalism. Sure. Where you have a particular brand and it's absolute journalistic integrity and right down the middle and it's just the facts. But then you look at it. Are you kidding me? I mean, you read the a particular paper or listen to the radio that's supposed to be just just as fair as it could possibly be, and you know about the editorial bias in 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. This is a danger that everybody, the confirmation bias that we all fall prey to, and we have, it's a question of basically our integrity. I mean, you, you run an organization, and so do I, and we have a point of view, and that's okay. It's actually better, by the way, when people know what your, your fundamental point of view is such that they can trust, I mean, they, they get that. It's funny, you know, you, you and I write books on, on the side of our- I do not write books. You're, I'm under contract to write a book, but okay. it's really oh. late. <laughs> so I hope I, I hope my book my book editor is not listening to this podcast. Yeah, he he is, and don't, don't worry, Ezra's going to work on his book after this podcast. And the first thing when you're writing serious nonfiction anymore is that people in the introduction to the book they want to know where you came from and how you see the world and and what your biases are, and they they want to know that you have some openness to the facts and you don't hate them if you disagree. If you're writing serious nonfiction and not just political diatribes, if you're doing something that's going to try to enrich people. And so this is what I wind up doing in all my books. In the first chapter, it says, look, I'm a free enterprise guy. I'm in a free enterprise economist. I'm center right in my political views. I'm, I'm a traditionally religious person, all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't think if you're a liberal and you're reading this, that you're evil. I don't think that you're stupid. And I actually do believe those things because if I said that, that would be an insult to a lot of my friends and all of my family. <laughs> I take it personally, by the way, when conservatives say that liberals are stupid and evil. But that's actually critically important. That's one of the great things that think tanks can do if they do have openness to the facts and they have openness to alternative points of view, but they're clear about their own mission point of view. That can be a, a service as opposed to hiding the ball like we're worried about here. One of the things that I think is worrying right now in the informational ecosystem in which everybody exists, and, and it gets talked about a lot in journalism, and I think it's very true in think tanks, is that we just have the conditions now for a real profusion of outlets in ways that are, I think, really good, actually. But it does create this capacity to cluster around the information you want to hear and then to, to cluster around the experts you want to hear. And it, it's really fascinating to see, you know, you travel from, you know, publication to publication and which think tank scholars are routinely quoted and which think tank scholars right. are routinely called. And just the thing that I really worry about is that it is very hard for a reader to know how to take that. I mean, it's very easy to put the right name and put the trappings of of authority and expertise around something. And and so I'll give you one example of, of something that I've struggled with a lot, going mm. back to my, my time at the Washington Post. When you write about a think tank's paper on right. something, 
one of the questions you need to ask is, let's say I'm saying talking about the American Enterprise Institute or, or, or the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. So do I say the right of center American Enterprise Institute or the liberal Center for American Progress or the conservative Heritage Foundation or the libertarian Cato Institute? And, and the reason I find this not an easy question is on the one hand, it is on me to help my readers sort of situate where mm -hmm. this information is coming from. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when I sort of offhandedly do that, what I'm doing is sending a signal. If you're a liberal and I'm saying this is a conservative think tank, don't worry about it. If you're a conservative and I'm saying this is a liberal think tank, you can safely dismiss this information. Right. And isn't it on me to be vetting the information such that if I'm quoting someone, shouldn't I have done the work to just say to you, this is from a think tank. And by the fact that I'm quoting it, I'm telling you that I think it is true or I'm going to argue right. with it. I'm going to tell you why I think it isn't true. Right. Like either I set up the motivated reasoning framework really quickly or I take it on myself for it all to be on my credibility. But there's no kind of rules about how you do that. Sure. In journalism. You know, and, and, and I feel your pain, Ezra. Now, I'm not a journalist, so I don't have to worry about that quite so much. What I what my job is, is making sure that we that we're consistent with our mission and consistently high quality, and we pursue truth before any sort of political or policy victory. By the way, this is one of the things that we say internally at AEI, that truth matters more than victory. And that's an ancient concept. It's a, an Old Testament concept, or if you want to probably before that, victory not predicated on truth won't endure. And you know, every think tank has learned this. When something it just it's just taken a little shortcut, you can't do that. Now, in the journalistic world, what's actually what's annoying to those of us who are in the center right intellectual universe is that ordinarily in, in in journalism, what you see is that they say that the center right American Enterprise Institute and the think tank, the Brookings Institution, where the, actually the qualifiers don't happen on left wing institutions, but they do happen on right wing institutions. And the reason is because I believe, and and again, I don't want to be ad hominem about it, but I think there's a a little tendency to just stick a finger into the stuff that comes from the center right. My obligation is to make sure that everything that we put out is is right. Not to, to censor it because I don't particularly like it or, or I, I don't like the tone of it, but to make sure that it's never wrong such that we can make your job a little bit easier and then to plead with journalists to say, you know, give us a chance and, and don't bias it. Don't spike this thing by, by basically putting a qualifier on the conservative organizations but not on liberal organizations. What are the think tanks other than your own that you think are the most interesting right now? The sort of, particularly the smaller ones that maybe people don't follow their research as closely? There are a lot at the state and local level. And last mm -hmm. week I was in Michigan speaking to the State Policy Network, which is this agglomeration of state and local free market oriented think tanks. And there were a thousand people at this. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And a lot of them were formed on the lines of the American Enterprise Institute. Every state has state and local think tanks dealing with state and local issues. And so you find some of them that are that specialize in legal and constitutional issues like the Goldwater Institute, which is fantastic. It's a really good organization. It advocates on behalf of people who are poor, but are kind of getting crushed under Leviathan, and which is, I think, a really important and noble mission. Or the Mackinac Institute in 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 Michigan, uh, they're doing really important work on behalf of of workers and workers' rights, and, and trying to bring industry back. And again, you want to have enough balance that it's not all you know one sided. The best organizations at the state and local level, like the two I just cited, are the ones that are in the fray and they're trying to be honest, and they really are looking for truth before victory. You wrote a column for the New York Times, I think not too long ago now, about rising to your level of occupational misery. Uh, <laughs> and what you talked about was the way in which there are these sort of competing 
elements in a person's work life where on the one hand they want to advance, they want a bigger job, they want more prestige. And what that'll basically do is take them sort of one step above where they're happy being. Right. So, you know, the writer becomes the editor or the happy editor becomes the unhappy manager. Right. Or the happy think tank scholar becomes the sad think tank administrator. I mean, it's sort of like a happiness <laughs> well, version. the happy reporter becomes, you know, the, the founder of yeah, yeah. and founder no, of I, I know. for example. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, it's sort of a, a happiness version of the Peters Principle. Yeah. And it's the yuppie Peter principle. The yuppie Peter principle. Yeah. I mean, yuppies, are, that's an ancient word. Nobody uses that anymore. But the, the truth is there are a lot of people listening to us that will never rise to the level of incompetence, which is the Peter principle, because they're just excellent in, the, in virtually this any, entire any, The entire audience for this podcast. Exactly right. Because this is the best audience. Right. Um, but you hear that will, advertises? <laughs> exactly right. They will, however, and they can rise to not their level of incompetence, but their level of unhappiness. And you see this a lot. People People are, they're designed effectively, they're wired for what they're good at and where their skills and their passions meet. And there's a window of that. There's an identifiable window that we see in the social science repertoire about you know, what, what you do where you get your sense of flow. You know, this is mm -hmm. literature by these psychologists led by Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, who is a social psychologist. I've from... never heard anybody successfully pronounce that name before. Oh, really? Yeah. I actually don't know if that was successful yeah. either, but it sounded confident. <laughs> it was, see, well, confidence is sort of a whole deal <laughs> in my business. But, so Csikszentmihalyi did, uh, has this work on flow, which shows that if you're in this state of passion and creativity, and it's not too hard, but it's not too easy, hours can turn into minutes. The trouble is that we're ambitious, and we keep getting lifted up. And people say, you know... You could do so much more if you were in a leadership position. And people cruise through this window of bliss, and they wind up in management. And if I hear it again and again. I hear it from donors to AEI and to smart guys like you. Not that you've told me this, obviously. You just brought this I up have not the told first you this, time. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but it's perfectly plausible that there are days when you say, man, I just wish I could learn about policy like I used to be able to have time to do, that I could do some data analysis, I could write about the guts of how policy work. I would love to know if there is anyone anywhere who manages an organization who finds flow in moving just from meeting to meeting. To, I don't mean that. I actually don't think it is possible. Oh, like when you get to a sort of an interruption based, like yeah. I didn't used to have like a calendar that was like broken down by 30 minute increments. Right. And for all the, the wonders of my job, which I actually really love, I don't think flow is possible in it in the way that it yeah. was. Like I really, as a writer can like, Four hours can go by. Sure. I basically won't notice it. For sure, um, absolutely. But it does not happen as a as a manager. It's you know it's funny. I do talk to people who've been doing it for a long time. And, and by the way, for those who are listening to us who have become managers and they're a little bit freaked out by it, there's a cadence to careers where you can get into something more like flow as you manage people, but it doesn't happen early on. The the canonical understanding of the creative frame of mind says, and this is just a rule of thumb. Everybody's different, but you do your best ideas. You do your best thinking in your 20s and 30s. That's when you have your most original thoughts in the intellectual world. You do your best writing when you're in your 40s and 50s. That's when Happy the, to hear that. Yeah, no, for sure. It's like <laughs> yeah, there's there's hope, brother. And you do your best teaching in your 60s and 70s. So basically, this is how we should structure the flow of our intellectual lives, the cadence of our intellectual lives. You're, you're coming up with the brilliant ideas and founding the organizations and doing the new things. And then you're, you're actually able to express it best a little bit after that. And then at the end of your career is when you actually, it's incumbent upon you to be as humble as you can possibly be and pass the knowledge on. I, I, I'm curious a little bit. I've never actually heard that sort of life cycle flow mm -hmm. theory before. How would that evidence even be gathered? I imagine it is not a tremendous number of people who go from 
intellectual work in the 20s and 30s to uh, writing about that work in the 40s and 50s to teaching in there. When you say it's a rule of thumb, what evidence is that based on? Well, it's a rule of thumb because there's actually not a big database. And what you find is that people experience that and you see that when you're at universities, which mm -hmm. have relatively large samples. And the way that, that you, you vet that is by looking at the most frustrated people. Why? Because this sort of the counterexample, people mm -hmm. who are militating against the cadence. So chairs of departments. It, well, chairs of departments. Well, actually, even more <laughs> So you have people who are in their 40s and 50s who are desperately trying to have a brand new shiny idea. It's really hard to do. Some of this, by the way, comes from the, the literature that looks at Nobel Prize winners in the sciences. Mm -hmm. They all do their work in the 20s and 30s. You don't find people who are doing Nobel Prize quality winning work in chemistry and physics and economics when they're 55 years old. It's just not happening. It's something usually comes out of their doctoral dissertations. It's insane. Mm -hmm. And what happens is in their 40s and 50s, they polish it up and they explain it and they use it and they apply it and they write articles and books about it. And they win the Nobel Prize because of what they're able to do with their own ideas in the subsequent years. And then when they go into the golden years of their own career, that's when they step back and they try to create the next generation of people who are going to create new ideas. And you know, Ezra, I think that that's what we get to do too, you and me, because we're in this intellectual firmament. We're blessed with leadership positions in the intellectual world. And the key is, so you're 34 or something, right? I am not. You're not. <laughs> you're 30 something. <clears throat> I'm 31. Okay, 31. So you're in the, the center of this, of actually what you're creating right now. And, and to think of the cadence of what your intellectual career is going to look like and how you're going to pass on the ideas and polish them up, I think is actually a healthy thing to do. So you can, you can sort of escape the yuppie Peter principle a little bit. So, so but I think it's a really interesting, interesting concept to go to it in the more general way, because you sort of wrote this column and you said kind of on the one side of this ledger is that people end up moving sort of to places where they're not happy. And right. you said you actually didn't in the piece sort of make the argument that what they should do is change jobs. Because I thought you had an interesting insight in. I think the the sort of the, the frontline insight into that would be like, okay, well, you should hit that point and then go back down. And right. what you said is like that right. feeling of failing, that feeling of going back down of regression is actually too painful. So you kind right. of get stuck. And your view is that the way to offset unhappiness in your moment to moment work was to find more meaning in it, for that work to be more in service of others. That's right. And I thought it was interesting because one of the things I was thinking about was, and you would again know this sort of happiness data better than I do, but it reminded me very much of the data around childbearing, that when people have children, their kind of time diary, how much fun are you having in this hour increment, it goes way down. It's right. like a, it's a complete trauma. Yes. Sonia Lubomowski at uh, UC Riverside has done the best work on this. And, and, and Kahneman at Princeton. So they do these 15-minute increments. Mm -hmm. And you say that, oh, having kids is going to make you really happy. Wrong. Especially for women, it goes way down. You're right. But it has this tremendous effect. Nobody ever wants to give their kids back. Exactly sort of right. increase in meaning in life. Meaning in life, which is more important than moment-to-moment -moment happiness. And so this is a great point that you're making. I, I actually you, think I'm just summarizing a point you made. Oh, well, that's the reason I like love it so, so much. much. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. See, this is once again the self-licking ice cream cone of, <laughs> of uh, the uh, DC ideas industry. That, that's right. And it, people are highly linear. They're loss averse, but they're really, we're, we're linear people. It's always, you want to go forward. You don't want to feel like you're going back. And there's also, uh, there's a trick here too. It's a real problem actually. In most industries, when you move into higher levels of management or administration or, or authority, uh, or control, you tend to de-skill. 
And mm-hmm. so people have a hard time moving backwards because they can't Wait, remember their define, jobs. Define de-skill. De-skilling means if you're an engineer and then you go up to becoming the foreman, they, it doesn't take very long. It takes only a couple of years before you're, you're not very good at doing your old job. There's somebody else who's better at it, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't actually retain yourself if you want to have the highest performing team. And so, and that's a hugely distressing phenomenon. It's very common and it's hugely distressing. By the way, the main reason that chief executives and other administrators fail is because they refuse to become good at those particular jobs because they want to keep doing their own jobs. Right. So you find people who just love to do sales. They're, they, they move up to CEO or something in high administration, but they never quite are all in. They never have both feet in it. They're still they're still hanging out with the sales crew and going out on sales calls. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this a lot in academia where deans will say, you know, I'm, just to keep my hand in it, I'm going to teach one class a semester. Don't do it. It's death. You don't want to do that because you're not going to be able to skill enough on your new job. And, you're making me feel very bad about the writing I do. <laughs> well, you know, and, and look, I, mean, I, I do it like 150 talks a year or something around the country, as I just mentioned, and I, you know, I get to write this column in the Times, and I write a book every two to three years. I try to convince myself that I'm not trying to keep my old life alive. Yeah, it definitely doesn't sound like you are. Well, it's a, it's, it's a different kind of work, well, to but be sure. Let, but... me, let me push you outside of that. Right. I actually struggle with this question a lot of like, how much should I write and how much should I, in some ways, even a podcast like this one where I'm sitting around interviewing, you know, policymakers and newsmakers. It's creative work. DC right. Personas is creative work. It's a lot, it's along the lines of what right. um, I did when I was sort of a full time on the internet, we called a content producer. And <laughs> I think there's a real trade-off because on the one hand, I do feel very clearly and, and very acutely the idea that whether I write in a day may be nice for me, but it is actually in no way really a reflection of whether I did a good job as sort of editor-in-chief of Vox.com that day. Right. Like it just has nothing to do with it. Well, it on has the, something to do with it. I'll, so I'll tell you the, why in a second. On right, the other yeah. side, if I completely lose touch with that kind of creative work, I don't understand how I will be able to evaluate or come up with new ideas for how we as an organization should do that work. So part of my job as as editor is to set coverage priorities to help innovate coverage formats to help come up with, you know, what we should be covering, sure. what are good ideas, what should be the sort of overall tone of the institution and it is very hard for me to understand if I lose complete touch with that work, how I will be able to effectively evaluate it and, and help sort of push it forward mm-hmm. with the organization. Sure. And, you know, we tend to overestimate uh, how much knowledge we need in, in, by, in having our hands in the creative work. Yeah. You want to be a player coach, and there are a bunch of different reasons for that. Part of it is you want to do creative work. It's part of who you are is to do creative work, and people deserve to be able to do it. But I, I actually think that probably you need to do less to be able to do a good job, but you deserve to be able to do it. And you're not going to be happy unless you're doing it. And that's what people who are listening to us need to remember, that as creative individuals, one of the best ways to avoid this paradox is to to remember that you're going to wall off a certain amount of your life that's going to be dedicated to this creative work. For me, I mean, I, I, I don't write two columns a week, but I write one column a month in the New York Times, and I put my heart into it, and I really love it. And I can kind of convince myself that this is great because it's good advertising for the American Enterprise Institute and the readers of the New York Times. They go, huh, I read this column by a guy, and he runs a conservative think tank, and he, you know, he's kind of making sense and all that. But, but the truth of the matter is it's partly because i got to stay alive so and spe- put one foot in front of the other. So speaking of your, of your writing, you just wrote this book called The Conservative Heart, yeah. which I read, and it's really interesting. It's really good. Thank um, you. I don't obviously agree with all of it, but it, but I, I really I do recommend. I, I really do recommend. If you I really do it. recommend that people read it. One of the things that is really central to that book, and I think to your 
worldview is not just the dignity of work, right. but the way work is part of human happiness, or at least sort of your definition, I think, of human mm -hmm. happiness. I, I would say that the way you frame the distinction between conservatism and liberalism, or conservatives as you would define them, and liberals as sort of uh, you would define them, is conservatives, and I think this is fair, are much more focused on policies that put people to work. And your view is that that, is that that effort, things like welfare reform or adding work requirements to, I don't know exactly, but food stamps and Medicaid, things like that, sure. it could be. That the point there is not just to get people off the rolls, but to put them in a position where they're going to be happier. And we've been talking a lot here about creative work. And you've mm -hmm. sort of been talking a lot here about creative work. And so right. if your job used to be French horn, and now it's AI. And these are great jobs. You and I are blessed to have had a mm -hmm. lot of good jobs. One thing that I think a lot about in DC and the way we talk about work and the way we talk about work as an unalloyed good is how many people have really shitty jobs. How many for how how many people work is really unpleasant. And and one of the the things I think about with it is that the sort of normal age of retirement in the sort of technical term, the term at which you start getting like regular social security benefits is 65. Uh -huh. And the sort of, you know, maximum is a, I believe it's about 70 now. And Yet the early age, the age we can start retiring is 62. And that is when most people actually retire, which is as soon as they can. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you, how you think about that question. Because one thing that strikes me as a systematic bias in DC is towards work, which on the one hand, I really agree with. I'm sort mm -hmm. of a, I work a lot. Mm -hmm. But I also love my work. And I think it's, and something I notice in DC is that there are a lot of issues around putting people to work that are viewed as very costless. Mm -hmm. Because everybody here in the think tanks, you got to carry people out at their desk after they die. In the Senate, people, I think, stay after they're actually right. dead for a that's, couple of years. That's an empirical question. And, that. and there's a real, I think, um, and so things like raising the Social Security retirement age feels very costless mm -hmm. because people here don't want to retire. They don't like to retire. But for people who really dislike their jobs, it's a choice between being with their family and being in this job. It is, I think, a much tougher one. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious how you weigh that. Let me tell you another problem that we have intellectually in, in D.C. is we think that our jobs are better than other people's jobs. So it's not just that, indeed, we work a lot because you and I work tons of hours. And that's great. But we also tend to think that because we have these creative intellectual jobs that that we must really like our jobs a lot more. The data don't support that. I'm going to give you, you know, two mm -hmm. basic two pieces of data. Number one is that about 85% of people in America, they don't all get tons of meaning from their jobs, of course. I mean, you and I get meaning from our jobs, but 85% of Americans, depending on the year, but it's around that every year, like or love their jobs. It's an amazing thing, and it doesn't vary with respect to educational attainment. So college grads and non-college grads and high school grads are all the same. It doesn't matter what sector you're in, although government sector workers are a little bit lower, but not a huge, not, not as much lower as you would think if you were listening to standard Republican talking points, by the way. And, and furthermore, it doesn't depend on income, which is really what's interesting. People who earn an income at least above uh, the lower class wages that where you're making decisions about whether or not, you know, I eat or buy medicine. I mean, that's obviously, at least obvious to me, is something that we should be able to obviate with a safety net in this country and with better policy, to be sure. But what you find is that, that people basically are equal. And furthermore, that there's very new and interesting research on this that shows that guys like you and me who have these jobs that they, they pay well and they're interesting and they're high pressure and we work all the time, we tend to feel more sadness and more anxiety and more anger around our work than people who are cutting lawns or trimming mm -hmm. hedges. So I think it's very important for us to remember that people get meaning from their work. I was talking to a guy the other day, I was doing a 
speech in Philadelphia and the guy comes up and, and I was talking about we shouldn't think about always making sure that people can rise. We need to remember that people are kind of made for expansion. And that kind of expansion really depends on their skills and their passions and their interests and their capabilities. And that's what we want to accentuate. That's what we want to encourage people toward such that they're not limited so very much. And the guy says, yeah, you know, he started out as a dentist mm -hmm. and, and he had a really good practice. But in his heart, what he really wanted to do was push a lawnmower. So finally he got his courage up and he sold his dental practice and, and he started the landscaping firm. And, you know, I'm, I gamely say to him, so I'm signing a book for him. I have to write about free enterprise. And I said, oh, you probably started a firm and have 60 guys working for you. He said, no, 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 no. Just me and my lawnmower. <laughs> you know? And the point is, it's important for us to remember that happiness and meaning as we define it, follow our sense of the dignity and structure that comes from our life, from earning our success, from, from creating value with our lives and value in the lives of other people. And that's what I'm talking about. The idea of me picking some person's job because he's poor and getting food stamps and forcing him down that tube, that's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But I want an opportunity society where people are not judged because they're trimming hedges as opposed to running hedge funds. I want that to be I, less yeah, classist. And I think it's really important. important. And, and the right and the left are getting this wrong. Both sides are very classist along what, these lines. What's funny is there's a real connection between that comment there that you just made, which I, I fully agree with, and sort of a far left idea of human flourishing, right? I'm not so up on my like exact distinctions in right. different forms of socialism, <laughs> but a very old idea that you now see heavily adopted by sort of the universal basic income movement, which right. has some adherence on the right as well. Sure. That, you know, what you really want to be able to do in a very, very, very rich society like ours is give people enough that they can choose their mode of human flourishing, right? And that that this idea, and I think there are people at AI who are sort of universal basic income types. Charles Murray, sure. if I'm not wrong, he was reading a book that, on this. Yeah, is in, yeah. Is in that is in that direction. And this idea that we should trust, we should give people enough that they can sort of get their basics done, right? They can eat, they can have some kind of a roof over their head, they can have clothing, and from there, if what they want to do is learn to play the violin and that's okay, and we actually shouldn't judge that. I'm curious where you come down on that. The, the basic problem with that is the construction of the policy itself, which is we should give people enough. Mm -hmm. People should be able to earn enough. That's really the most important thing, and they shouldn't be able to fall too far. In my view, that's the right construction of it. We need an opportunity society where people can earn more and earn a lot more depending on, on what their values are and how many hours they choose to work. But the people who, for whatever reason, even if it's their own fault, shouldn't fall too far. That's the reason that, that my construction of a lot of the debates that we have today around poverty policy start with declaring peace on the safety net. And then remembering that it truly is only for the indigent, so you don't fall too far. And number three, figuring out good ways that we can have work and education requirements such that we can bring people into more opportunity, into more dignity. Because the truth of the matter is that the, the great metastasis of unemployment and inactivity and idleness in this country come from the fact that people haven't worked before and never have gotten into the sense of creating value. The greatest predictor of idleness is idleness. And How the greatest predictor of work is work. Is too far to fall where you don't have health insurance? Should everybody have basic level, some kind of care, right. catastrophic, whatever? What, what, do you, what do you count as so far that now you've gone beyond the line of a decent society? That depends on societies and times. And I get that, believe it or not, from probably the most important conservative economist of the 20th century, which is Friedrich Hayek. Mm -hmm. In The Road to Serfdom, he talks about the, the first job of government being actually creating a safety net. And, and you know, it's very sort of old school the way he talks about it. 
about it, making sure people have enough food and and clothing, right? This is enough to work, right? Yeah, it's, enough well, clothing that they can actually go well, to work. And that's actually, it's it's not even that. It's basically enough so that we understand that we have a conscience as a society and understand that certain people, even through their own fault, if they don't have enough, we don't want to be stepping over oh, urchins in the street. So let me be, I didn't mean sort of morally he means it. He actually, I think, I actually read this quote in your book very right. recently when I was studying up for mm-hmm. this interview. He says that, and it, it struck me as actually a good way of thinking about it, that people should have a level such that they are actually able to go out and, and, and participate in society. Because right. if you let them fall, it is a real self-fulfilling cycle. Exactly. I mean, a great example of this, right, is dental care. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of people who fall to a point where they don't get dental care. They right. begin losing teeth. And there are all kinds of jobs they're then basically completely Absolutely. walled off from because right. people don't want them at the, uh, right. at the cash register. That's exactly right. Which and so really so, tragic. Actually. So my own view is that we have to look at this in terms of basic services and healthcare and food and shelter and, and in other just rock bottom basic services. And, you know, I don't want to maintain people in poverty, but you have to mix this with a, a kind of a militant environment where people can work and, and opportunity and entrepreneurship can be shared with people who need it the most, which is to say, not just software engineers and people with PhDs and MBAs. I do want some standard of catastrophic healthcare insurance and and other things such as what we're talking about here. I want to make sure that food stamps are available to people who don't need them. And then I want to have a goal not to get people food stamps who need them, but to have fewer people need them, which by the way, is, is you know, a, a, a measurement issue that the right and the left need to come together on. You know, what are we measuring? The, the right tends to measure how low we can get the budget on these basic services. And the left tends to measure how many people got the services and nobody's measuring how many people need them which is the best metric I bet that you and I would come together on if we were trying to design social policy. So I want that and I want the basic services and the standard that, look, people are going to disagree. Liberals and conservatives should disagree on that. But we should be able to have a, a standard moral consensus of, of pushing opportunity to the people who need it the most. Because why? And this is a slightly different issue, which is the reason that policy differences in D.C. today are a holy war is because they're not rotating and and going in orbit around a moral consensus. If you can have a moral consensus about what the American experiment is all about, then policy differences become a competition of ideas, and they're healthy and good. But if you don't, if it's policy differences for the sake of ideology, then it's a holy war, and the moral consensus gets entirely lost. That's the reason I try to set up this construction of declaring peace on the safety net and only for the indigent and with work or education to the extent that we possibly can, such that we can remember the why of this. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of contact with different kinds of politicians. Name the most interesting politician sort of in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party who most people don't know about. Who most people don't know about. That's an interesting question. Uh, I know. I I thought of it myself. It's a great question. Thank you, Ezra. I'm going to say the most interesting guy that I know on the right is former Speaker of the Florida House. It's a guy named Will Weatherford. And he got term limited out. I mean, they're so hardcore in Florida. They, they'll, they'll, this guy is this rising star, and he gets kicked out of the House of Representatives in Florida. He was the speaker because he got term limited. And we're all going to be hearing about him. Most of our listeners don't know about him. He's a warrior for the poor, and he wants to deploy incredibly conservative policies specifically because poverty is what he cares about the most. That's the new right, if there's going to be a new right. And that's a new right ethos that really has to pervade the conservative movement, as far as I'm concerned. Who's the most interesting politician on the left that people don't know about? You should say something like Jerry Brown because he's endlessly interesting, but everybody knows about him. So that's a, that, so that one doesn't count. I talked today to Mark Warner, 
and a lot of people on the right don't know, um, but he's actually trying to innovate. Senator from Virginia. Exactly yeah. right. And I'll tell you, my favorite congressman these days is John Delaney from <laughs> Maryland. John Delaney, he just he's completely unclassifiable. I mean, if you looked at certain standard issue concerns on social policy, for example, you'd understand that he's a Democrat. But boy, oh boy, you know, when I talk to him, he really challenges my own thinking and he's very sophisticated in his own. So that's a guy that I, I would like uh, Republicans to keep more of an eye on. Which writers, uh, present company excluded, of course, do you, do you <laughs> always make a point to read? The, the guys who, who write in the New York Times that I, that I really like a lot, um, David Brooks is great. And, you know, that's standard. Is that because he's your brother? Yeah. People think that we're related. <laughs> you know, he always, <laughs> David always writes, you know, when he says, something that when it's I come very up. hard to tell the conservatives writing about happiness research yeah. named Brooks in the New York Times apart. Sometimes. I know. I know. <laughs> it's not entirely clear that the New York Times needs more than one conservative Brooks. And I, unfortunately, if they had that standard, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> but, you know, he's look, he's he's terrific because he's his work is transcendental and it goes beyond public policy. But it's really applied in all sorts of interesting ways. I love that. I, th I think it's great. For years and years and years, of course, I've read Paul Krugman. I mean, I don't agree with what he says. And I wish he didn't say that those of us who are on the right are fools and knaves all the time. But look, there's nobody smarter. It's unbelievable how much knowledge he has, what a good writer he is, and how he's able to bring these ideas to bear. So these are people I, you know, to be quite honest, I, I never miss. And what is the book you wish you had read at 20? When I was 20, I was making a living as a French horn player, so I wasn't reading very many books. You know the book? It, it, it is the Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know why? Because it sounds transactional and terrible, but it's a, it's a manual for ethical living. Hmm. And you know, there's these anecdotes in there that have really changed the way that I do my work and, and my thinking today, and I wish I had been doing it then. And there's this one that really sticks in my head, This it, it, Dale Carnegie, because he's a master storyteller. And he's tell, he tells the story of this magician in 1920 on Broadway. Because back in the day, people would come in from the Midwest and go to Broadway and look at these variety shows. It wasn't just these lavish musicals. And this magician had been doing the same tricks for 35 years. And these people would come in from Wisconsin and Minnesota. And they would, you know, he'd do the same tricks, pulling the rabbits out of hats and card tricks, et cetera. And, and he could have said, you know, these rubes, okay, time to do the same old tricks. And so easy. What a bunch of idiots. No, no, no. He tell, Dale Carnegie tells the story that every night in his dressing room before he went out, he would say, I am truly grateful for the people in this audience who make it possible for me to make my living doing something I love. And, you know, if I'd done that when I was 20, I would have been a happier French horn player. And when I read that as a, as a college professor, I was a much better college professor. And, you know, last night I was, I was in Minneapolis and there was an audience of like 1,200 people. And I said that to myself before I went out on stage. And, you know, it really came true. It was gratitude for the people who make it possible for Ezra and Arthur to do this beautiful, beautiful thing. I'd read that when I was 20. That gratitude would have given me a happier life, and I think I could have done more good. It's a good place to end. Arthur Brooks, uh, thank you for all your time today. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to AC Valdez, who made this all happen, the panoply. Uh, I'm Ezra Klein at Vox.com. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. Tell me if you like this kind of thing. If you want me to do more interviews, who you'd like interviews with, you can email me at weeds at Vox.com. And go subscribe on iTunes. Go review us if you review us. I think we get some sort of magic boost in the algorithm, which is great. Tune in next week when we'll be back on our regular panel discussion with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff and all the policy wonkery you could possibly want. 